Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. In Devotion 831, we looked at Ezra 9.5, in which Ezra, with robe and tunic torn, has been in a time of humiliation. He's heard the news about this sin that became rampant. It began with a singular act of acquiescence, particularly among the spiritual leadership of Israel, and it became a pandemic of sin. And now it has wreaked havoc. It has become widespread. Ezra's been made aware of it. And he seems to be the first one of uh, spiritual leadership in Israel who expresses sorrow and humiliation on a corporate level. He has not partaken of this particular sin. In our culture today, when someone's caught in sin, we may be inclined to enjoy a gotcha moment and make a podcast about their sin, even if they're repentant of it, which, by the way, advertisers will pay us money to put out. But this is the polar opposite response. This is one of corporate confession, where we say, oh, God, forgive us. God, forgive them. And so he is in a deeply penitential posture before God. Here's Ezra 9.5, just as a recap, so you understand what he's about to do. Everything about this verse indicates a posture. He got up from his time of humiliation. The the text doesn't indicate his exact physical posture, but we know that he is down. He's physically down. And then he gets up because it's time for the evening offering. He's got to worship. All right, when you're feeling deeply convicted for your sin, you got to get up and you got to go to worship. Okay, people don't come to worship on Sunday mornings at the Redemption Church because they've been particularly righteous. Many of the people standing next to you in worship that day are feeling the exact opposite. Some of you may be there just rejoicing, and when you worship, you're singing out praise and gratitude for the God who saved your soul and also blessed you financially. But there are other people in that crowd who are crying out and worship to God because He's worthy, and they're asking Him for mercy because they've really blown it. All right, He's worthy of worship, regardless of how we feel. I'm not going to tell my son Asa on his birthday, sorry, son, I'm not going to give you a gift because I have been struggling with the sin of pride. Asa's like, but, but see, he's my son and I'm going to give him a gift because of who he is. I'm going to worship God because of who he is, regardless of who I am. I'm not going to withhold praise to the God who deserves all of it. So, man, if you feel like I can't go to church because I've been particularly sinful, you're missing the point. You were never righteous enough to enter the Holy of Holies. It is only by the blood of Christ, paid in full by Jesus, all of your sins atone for, that you can even enter the holiness of God. So whether you're going there to give Him thanks or going there with a heart that is deeply convicted, He's worthy of worship. It's time to get up. It's time to go to worship. All right? And, you know, then he falls on his knees. So he's up and then he's back down again. He is indicating a a surrender. He has spread out his hands. Okay, we also see New Testament precursors to this, lifting up holy hands to God. Some say that it indicates surrender. I think that here Ezra is calling out for mercy. And then look at this, the Lord, my God. The Lord, the one who's in charge, God, the omnipotent one, and also he is mine. This is, remember, this is an Old Testament passage. Ezra didn't have the kind of intimacy with the Holy Spirit that we do. When Christ died on the cross, the curtain was torn, and now the dwelling of the Holy Spirit is not in the temple, but it's our bodies. It's ourselves. Our bodies have become the new temple. So we can say this on a level that Ezra could not. 
He is the Lord our God. So that's what gives rise to this. While Ezra prayed and confessed, this is chapter, chapter 10, while Ezra, Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God, an extremely large assembly of Israelite men, women, and children gathered around him. The people also wept bitterly. See, this is, this is how corporate confession is done. The sin, the falling away, it probably began with just one priest, one Levite, marrying a woman of the nations forbidden by God, or possibly from Egypt and Moab, and worshiping their false gods. And then everybody said, hey, this is benign, this is okay. And that acquiescence led down the slippery slope of sin. But now the repentance began, it seems, with one man, and the whole assembly's gathered around, and they're also weeping bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, an Elamite, responded to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the surrounding peoples, but there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. That's a packed verse right there too. Shechaniah is right. They've been unfaithful to God, right? And it's not just, it's not, it's, it's not just the foreignness of these women, it's their gods. There were leaders in the past who had foreign wives. Moses had a foreign wife. Joseph had a foreign wife. It's worshiping their gods. But there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let's make a covenant before our God to send away all the foreign wives and their children. Here's what I told you. This is controversial. According to the counsel of my Lord, Right now, this is not, if you're listening to this on audio, <clears throat> you're not watching on Allies Network, <clears throat> the word Lord is not uh, the, the, the lowercase capitalized version of the tetragrammaton. It's, it's just the word Lord, lowercase. And of those who tremble at the command of our God, let it be done according to the law. Oof. Get up, for this matter is your responsibility and we support you. Be strong and take action. So here is the confession of corporate sin by someone other than Ezra. And here is the first proposition for mass repentance. And, and you know that he didn't say these words flippantly. Sending away the foreign wives and their children. He just proposed breaking up a whole bunch of families. And when he mentions the command of our God, the only command that I can think of that he's referring to is Genesis 34. So this is a drastic, drastic mode of corporate repentance. And by the way, uh, just because I know it's going to be on your mind, <clears throat> I do believe that Israel provided for these women and children as they sent them away. All right, that they, they did give them financial provision. They had been amply funded by the Persians and spent, you know, none of their own money uh, rebuilding the temple or the wall. And so I believe that they provided for these women and children, but the text doesn't explicitly indicate that. So what he's just proposed is drastic. It is costly. It reminds me of two men I met in Orlando who had been together they had both been married before one of them had a son in that marriage, and the two of them began 
homosexual relationship with each other, and they became a family in their own right, in the legal sense. And that son, man, like the judge couldn't move fast enough to give the two gay men custody of the boy, stripping him from their mother, his mother. And this has wreaked havoc, right? Uh, my friends in the gay community, you will never know the stories of the women whose worlds have been utterly ripped apart by judicial activism. One woman sat in my office just weeping because her ex-husband, who had promised before God and witnesses to be faithful to her, began a gay affair, married in the legal sense, that man, the judge couldn't move fast enough to give custody to the gay couple. All of the friends who came to her wedding were commenting on Facebook at the gay couple to virtue signal to everybody how tolerant they are. Look at the beautiful family you've made. And this woman was crushed, betrayed on multiple levels. She lost custody of her children. She was a perfectly good mother because of judicial activism, because of sin. She now has her world utterly ripped apart and she is not alone. Now, fast forward the clock. These men start coming to our church in Orlando and they come under deep conviction for sin. And they realize what they've done and the two of them together, you know, here they are. Now they're saved, now they're Christians, and they recognize like the word of God is true. What we've been living in is sin. And we don't know how to repent here. All right, the, one of the, the, the other man had adopted this boy. What, what do you do? Well, that's put up or shut up time as a pastor. You've got to take drastic measures to repent. And they did. Beginning that day, they made separate living arrangements. You know, the boy would stay with his biological father. They would reach out to the mother to rearrange custody. And what would have been recognized as a legal family was dismissed to the glory of God in drastic repentance. This is why Christians were opposed to gay marriage in the first place, because we saw stuff like this coming. Every time you see a gay couple and there's a child involved, there's a parent out there somewhere. And every time you see a gay couple who is legally married and they have custody of a child, what happens when they repent? I mean, political culture moved drastically against any kind of biblical wisdom that would speak to the sinful nature of homosexuality. And when someone comes into the conviction of the Holy Spirit and they see this for themselves, suddenly they're not allowed to repent. You're allowed to do anything you want in a culture that has gone off the rails sexually, anything but repent from sin, anything but the Judeo-Christian worldview, anything but give your life to Jesus and walk in repentance from sin. So while we as New Testament believers may not be faced with quite the particular conundrum that Ezra has faced, there are stories like this around you right now where, man, God hates divorce, but God never 
ordained gay marriage. He just didn't. He's always said from the beginning that a man would leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two would become one flesh. That has been the case since the creation of humanity. God spoke, and it is so. So when we invent new devices, regardless of how much ink we put on paper to codify them, regardless of how much authority we contrive to say that we've invented, we've reinvented something, all that we've really done is created this distorted, sinful imitation of what God made. Yes, God has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman, and it's not coincidental that this would be the only combination of the only two genders that exist that also results in human life, where children are raised by a mother and a father, their mother, their father, ideally, and that's the setting in which children flourish the most. It's not a coincidence. So pray for your neighbors in Seattle. As we ask God to bring revival, there may be stories like these around us. God hates divorce. The one provision he's given is infidelity, and even then it's not required. So when we contrive new devices not dissimilar to what Israelites did, we must be willing to take drastic measures to repent.